We're in the book of Esther. If you could open your Bibles, uh, chapter 4, we're going to begin there. If you forgot to bring your Bible this morning, we'll have it on the screen for you. And here's the big idea. Esther and Mordecai are not perfect people. Can anybody relate to that at all? All right, we're all on a journey of faith. Amen? So... They've been put on a pedestal in a number of Bible studies and probably a lot of sermons, but it's really not until today's text in chapter 4 that we see them progress in the faith. The pack play the Patriots tonight in New England, right? Is that correct? It's a way game. Think, if, if you will, of a football field, okay? We don't evaluate an offense by where they are on the field in a given moment. We evaluate them by where they started from and in what direction we're going. Would you say that's fair for the sport of football? Pardon if you don't like football, this analogy. Not everybody starts off in Jesus um, running full speed ahead at their own 40 from the kickoff. Are you following me? Some people start on their own 10. I got a buddy named Daniel Tyler whose dad beat him growing up, whose mother uh, was killed tragically when he lived in Marshfield, and he and I were best buds, and remember going over to his porch and just sobbing with him. Um, Daniel didn't even get handed the ball at the 10. He, like, started back in the parking lot somewhere and was told to advance it, right? So we all begin from a different frame of of reference. It's not lost on me that I kind of received the ball in the red zone. My grandfather was a cursing sailor in the Navy, and his buddy Red, after the war, led him to faith, came back, went to Bible college. His son, firstborn, became a pastor. My dad... Secondborn eventually became a pastor. The thirdborn, he became a cable repairman, but eventually his son became a pastor. And so in many ways, uh, today I'm a pastor because I got good field position, right? So the question isn't where you started from. The question is along the lines of whether or not you're making progress and where, what direction we're going in. Mordecai and and Esther run the ball out of the end zone and get tackled immediately. They nearly fumble the ball. Let's say they're on their own three, and life is rough, and they've got 97 yards to go, and for many years they don't seem to make any progress whatsoever. And at this point in our story, Esther has been married to King who? Xerxes, hard to say, isn't it? Especially a number of times throughout a sermon. And finally, in chapter 4, the spiritual climate begins to change. You may be here this morning and you haven't made, made a lot of progress in your faith. Maybe you're like Mordecai, maybe Esther. I hope that you'll leave encouraged this morning by what we're going to share from their story. Would you bow your heads? I'd like to pray. Father, we just invoke your presence here with us, Lord, your spirit. We just ask that you would repair someone this morning. We ask that you'd begin a process of restoration. We ask that you'd begin a a process of activity in gospel-oriented stuff. 
maybe for the first time in someone's life, that they'd move from being a passive follower of you to one who's diligent and effective and fervent. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, if you're visiting, we just move through the Bible here verse by verse. Sometimes we'll take a half a chapter, sometimes a whole chapter. By the way, it's great to see Gary and Mary Lou Lehman back this morning. We had to say a very difficult gospel goodbye to that. Gary's an elder here at the church to that family when they left to go start a new location in Edgar. And uh, you haven't been here in many, many, many months. And Gary just told me during the meet and greet, he said, do you know John Drexler? And I said, well, I'm getting to know John Drexler. And he said, if it weren't for John, Mary Lou wouldn't have accepted Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? Did you know that, John? Were you aware of that? Kudos to you, buddy. Way to share your faith. You were active. You weren't passive. That's how it works. This thing's contagious. Okay? Um, there was a, I'm trying to remember the name of the, of the bishop or the saint that said, preach the gospel every day and if necessary, use words. Yeah, Assisi, thank you. I hate that quote. I mean, it's like we're meant to tell. Are we meant to show it? Of course we are, but we're also meant to speak. That's how truth is transmitted. Amen? Amen. All right, so if you're just starting with us, let me catch up to speed. These narrative books require you not to miss. They're quite tough on visitors. These narrative books, they're quite tough on, on, on those of you that don't come every Sunday. So this is the time in history where King Xerxes ruled over most of the Persian kingdom. He's at this time the most powerful, influential, wealthy man in all of the world. He's on a literal throne. If anyone else sits on it, touches it, gets near it, they're put to death. And in every way, as depicted in the film, uh, I, I can never remember, is it 300 or 400? Three, 300, thank you, um, which I don't necessarily recommend that you watch. He's depicted as a god. And indeed, he said, I'm the king of all what? Now, as people of faith, who do we know to be the king of all kings? Jesus Christ, but that's what Xerxes thought about himself. And he's so cocky and he's so arrogant that he feels this, this need to reassure himself of his clout. And he assembles, um, really, initially, 15,000 drunk military men, an open bar, if you could imagine this, for, I want to say, we read six months and at the end of that six-month process, he inv invites what, what historians say is 50,000 people for a one-week-long party. Again, open bar. How much do you think that cost him? Liquor for six months, 15,000 people, and then for a week for 50,000, 60,000. That's a lot of dough. And he was not short on dough. And to really scratch his back, he said, Hey, Queen Vashti, my lovely bride, come and show your stuff. Just wear something a little skimpy and parade in front of all of my buddies. And they're going to think I'm the shiz. 
They're going to think I've got it together. They're going to think I'm bigger, badder, better. And so here she entertains the question and she says, no, I will not be paraded. I will not be objectified. I'm not going to walk the aisle. And so Xerxes, um, not willing to be rejected, divorces her, and a few years later decides, after some advice from some young people, should we or shouldn't we ask for advice from young people? Probably not, okay? Find somebody older than you. Get counsel from them. So they tell him, hey, hold a competition. We call this Bachelor Persia Edition. And in all likelihood, hundreds of women enter this, and the women were treated to a spa for an entire year. Uh, The winner gets to be the new queen. You win by not only your beauty, but by your sexual performance. That's how this works. It's a lot like, again, The Bachelor, except for instead of a handful that reached the fantasy, fantasy suite level, 400 reached the fantasy suite level. On a series of night after night after night, he's evaluating, he's thinking about it, he's trying to come to grips for who he wants to be the queen. And one of the young women that was in the competition was named Esther. She's Jewish by descent. We have no indication that she's actively walking with God, especially at first, it seems. Her parents died when she was a little girl. She's an orphan. Her first cousin, do you remember his name? Mordecai, good. He adopts her. Are you with me? Say yes. Anybody remember this story? Okay. And up until this point, Mordecai, her first cousin, the new queen, she wins, if, if you could call it that, he has acted rather cowardly. Instead of trying to escape the king's game, instead of trying to run off with his likely teenage adoptive daughter, he submits her to his process. He hands her off without a fight. Not only that, but he did not want the fact to be shared that he also was indeed a what? A Jew. He privatized, unlike what John did years and years and years ago, his faith. He kept it a secret. And so, On what becomes kind of an odd hill to plant a flag and die on, Mordecai all of a sudden musters up some courage because because he, he foiled an assassination plot against the king. He, he probably thinks he deserves a promotion. Instead, a few years later, the king promotes a guy named Haman. And Haman, as was culturally appropriate in the day, wanted everybody to bow to him politically to show respect, not unlike some ancient Eastern cultures. And he doesn't. Mordecai says, thanks, but no thanks. Why he was bold in this moment for the first time, I don't know. You'd think we would see that boldness earlier in the story. He doesn't bow. The Bible says it goes on for days. Doesn't bow. Doesn't bow. And Haman, being the egomaniac that you soon learn that he is, he, loving power, loving control, loving recognition, develops a scheme to commit. We looked at this last week. We're almost caught up. What? Genocide. Historians tell us that his intent was to murder approximately 15 million Jews. Had he succeeded, it would have been a greater 
tragedy than World War II-era Nazi Germany and what it accomplished. Haman is in every way Hitler-esque. He preceded Herod, who preceded Hitler. All of them wanted to accomplish the same thing. Satan gave him the same script. They announced this via letter. First postal system. In advance, Mordecai is one of the ones who gets the memo. We'll keep reading. Verse 1, the latter half, tore his clothes, Mordecai did. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went out in the middle of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. What is this all about? This is so foreign to our Western eyes as we read. What What is he doing? This is a very public form of emotion. It is sincere. It is gut-wrenching. It is displayed in a very public way. It is, in, in all likelihood, also a form of protest. And the decree, the death sentence, has been sent out. It's been put into effect. And so here he is wailing in the streets of Susa. Like the gas chambers, would be fired up at another point in human history. Xerxes' horses were in this moment being saddled. Swords were being sharpened. And here Mordecai stands absolutely powerless, and for the first time in the story, he publicly identifies himself as being a part of God's people. Until this point again, He's expressed faith, even trying to get out of trouble from bowing to Haman, but he's done so only to a select group of people. In this moment, he moves from silence to speaking. In this moment, he moves from being passive to being active. He's making what, we might say? He's making progress in his faith. (laughs) He's making a, a first down. Thank you. You're listening. We don't know what Mordecai truly uh, believes. We might put it this way. We don't know when his faith becomes a saving faith. But it certainly seems that up until this point, both he and Esther have not walked with God. Isaiah prophesied he should have been back in Jerusalem. He decided to stay in a pagan place. He's sang no songs that we've read in the first three chapters. He's prayed no prayers. He's tithed no tithes. He's offered no sacrifices. Nothing that we've read has indicated a a deep sincerity of faith. And in chapter 4, he finally gets it. To use Rick Warren's analogy, instead of making faith in God a badge to hang on his sash alongside the the work badge and and the recreation badge and the family of badge, he decided in that moment to make God the sash on which all of the other badges rather hangs. And for the first time, here he is in this spot. Let this be an encouragement to those of you who up until this point have been passive in your faith, cowardly 
sheepish in terms of your love for Jesus Christ? How wonderful would it be to in 10, 20 years from now have somebody here in this service that we could celebrate and say Kurt led that person to Jesus and Christy led that person to Jesus and Pat led that person to Jesus and Leah led that person to Jesus. They weren't always confident. They weren't always unafraid. They weren't always empowered by the Spirit, but something was generated in an active way. And they became vocal. They stopped hiding it. Verse 2. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. Anybody here ever had a little personal policy that you only want to hear good news This was King Xerxes' policy. Galen Hendrickson, my ministry mentor, um, he would have days, staff meeting, he'd say, I only want to hear good news today. If you've got bad news, save it for tomorrow. I can't handle it. If something's unpleasant, mum's the word until I tell you differently. Ancient kings were the same way. You were not allowed to cry in front of them. They didn't want all the emotive stuff. They wanted wins, not losses. Uh, We've said this throughout the series, the times have changed. The people have not. We're no different today. King Xerxes, Galen Hendrickson, right? That's the way this works. I don't know that he would appreciate that. So let's talk about grief for just a moment. Did you know that we don't grieve well as Westerners? Our Eastern brothers and sisters commonly grieve and publicly so. How do you and I, how do Europeans, how do Americans grieve? You know how we do it? We say, we're good. We're fine. We're okay. Never mind the illness diagnosis. Never mind the lost loved one. Never mind the impending divorce. We're good and we're fine. And people say that until their proverbial house is burnt entirely to the ground. And then, this is how it goes, I as a pastor get a call and and, and they ask me to put out the fire. And after saying they're good for several years, all that's there, is a heap. Let me ask you this. Does the Bible anywhere to your knowledge say, thou shalt not lose it? Thou shalt not wail. Thou shalt not grieve. Thou shalt not get emotional. Of course it it doesn't. Because when you lose it after a service or when you lose it in a life group, you're allowing people to know you. You're allowing people to love on you. Here's what we ought to be saying. You know what? Frankly, it's a hard season. Shannon and I are in one of those right now. We're not doing well, okay? And let me tell you why. That's what we ought to be saying. Because the Bible does say, thou shalt not lie. Doesn't it? We're supposed to be honest with our brothers 
and, and sisters. If all we ever say is, I'm great, are we or aren't we being truthful? We're not. Amen? So we need to be okay with that. We celebrate. We're, the mill is great at celebration. We're joyful. We love to have fun. We love, love to laugh. We can improve upon our grieving. Okay, so if you all wear black sackcloth, ashes, bring them along next Sunday. Do you know God himself expresses sadness? Genesis 6, he regrets that he made man. And he grieves. Do you remember Jesus? What did he do when he looked down at the city of Jerusalem? He wept for its lostness. He had a burden in his heart for people that did not know himself. It drove him to tears, and then he lost his friend Lazarus. What happened? Jesus wept. There's something very biblical about vulnerability. And you gritty central Wisconsinites say, that's not tough. That's embarrassing. Jesus, remember, also made a whip himself and used it Indiana Jones style to drive money launderers out of a temple. There's a time to be tough as snakes, he says, and there's a time to be tender as doves. There's time for both. There's, there's a season for, for each. You see a bully physically in an altercation with a small child at school? Tell me, students, is that a time to be tough or is that a time to be tender? Beating up on a kid. That's a time to be tough, right? Shannon and I lost our first pregnancy due to miscarriage. Is that a time to be tough? Is that a time to grin and bear it? That's a time to be tender toward one another. That's a time to grieve well. If you don't grieve well, you will break. You'll absolutely break. Why? Because you inwardly house all of the built-up tension. It's got to have a release valve. If you don't exercise the God-given release valve of grief, you'll explode. And the explosion doesn't just affect you. It affects others around you. Just ask my kids. Our general inability to grieve may be partly responsible for our depression as a society, for our over-medication as a society. Why? Because we internalize our hardship and we're told we ought to be tough enough. How many of you would say, you know what, if I could learn to lament good, it might just be a better alternative than meds. It may be, by God's grace. Amen? Gospel-centered vulnerability. Um, another thing that grieving does, we're not getting anywhere in the text today, and that's okay, is it's a great way to make friends. 
grieving is. Your grieving invites other people to know you and love you. And I'd be remiss not to point out that in excess, grieving is one of the fastest ways to repel people. Please don't do that. In other words, don't be so narrowly focused with your own issues that that's all you talk about. You're not other-centered on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. What you're dealing with is not as apocalyptic as you think it is. Don't grieve exhaustively, but grieve openly and appropriately and let others see it. Uh, All I'm saying is that as we sing and rejoice together, we need to get good at grieving together. Amen? All right. Sorry to spend so much time there. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Chapter 4, Mordecai's faith gets activated. What do we mean by activated? Let's say you go to a pool and a little kid's on the edge getting ready to to jump and wearing um, what we would say in the Midwest is water wings. Okay? I got to be careful because I got a friend here from North Carolina. I think it's uh, uh, floaties where I grew up, not water wings. So I might have to translate occasionally. Um, let's say for the purposes of this illustration that dad's in the water ready to catch kid. How do you know that the kid trusts his father poolside? Is it when the kid breaks out a commentary and a lexicon and starts talking about the Greek word for faith? which is, if you get my direction, the way a lot of Christians try to be active in their faith by having more Bible studies, by going more more deep in the Word, none of which is wrong. But at some point, it has to turn externally and quit being all inside of them. How do, how do you know that the kid's ready to jump, or rather ready to place his trust in Dad, if he or she jumps, Right? You know, the kid's ready. And our faith is demonstrated likewise by our action. Did you know that some of you whose faith I've seen activated over and over and over again are an encouragement to me, are an encouragement to Shannon. It's absolutely contagious. And there are others of you who have attended for years whose faith I have rarely to never. I thought of some examples this morning. Of course, I'm going going to refrain from saying names. But I'll tell you, I know you're here, and I have never, I, I, I can honestly say, never seen you respond to the voice of God. Never seen you compelled to do something because of the Holy Spirit's impression. I've never seen you jump in the pool. You've sat on the edge and got out the lexicon, but you've never jumped into your father. Never seen you rake leaves. Never seen you any place outside of Sunday mornings. Never seen you serving in children's ministry. By the way, we had nearly 90 zero through fifth graders last Sunday in kids' ministry. Can we just celebrate that? That's cool. That's 90 kids that God is 
entrusted to our care in Stratford and in Edgar. That's the future of this church. And can you help us, I would say, as a, as a tangent, nurture them and take care of them by getting on the schedule? That's a great way to be actionable with your faith rather than opening the lexicon again. Shannon and I have undergone uh, quite an adjustment in the last several weeks. I don't know that I've shared this from the pulpit. Our family jumped from three to six within about a six-month time period. And on some days, we have unmitigated joy. And it is just awesome. And there are other days, because raising kids isn't convenient ever, that we grieve. They are glorious, but they are gloriously inconvenient, are they not? And some evenings we suffer from sheer exhaustion. We know in the very depths of our hearts, just like Mordecai discovered, that faith is actionable, that we're making the right decision for us. Um, The faith isn't faith unless we do something with it. And and I'll tell you that we're we're far from from perfect. Um, Allow me to illustrate, last weekend we took all six kids to Festival Foods. Pastor Farrell, imagine uh, Kroger Grocery, and your local county fair becoming married and having a baby. That is our local grocery store, Festival Foods. It's an exciting place to be. It's colorful. It's lively. It's energetic. And they have something where they invite you to trick-or-treat. And so the employees dress up. The shoppers dress up. It's overcrowded. There's people everywhere. Shannon and I have two babies in the stroller that need space to maneuver. We don't have that space to maneuver. We discover right away. Meanwhile, our seven-year-old Levi is wanting to lead the family, okay, but naturally he knows nothing about public courtesy. He's seven, so he's cutting people off right and left, dashing in front of their carts, and we're trying to follow them, and Miles is like backing into people's photo opportunities at this this display with corn husks and, and pumpkins, and the stuff just hits the fan, Within minutes, we did no planning. We had no discussion with the kids. Um, I kid you not, if you know uh, Festival's layout, Shannon and I got into an argument before produce. That's the second section. It's right after the liquor section, which now that I think about it may have been a better place to argue. So we're there, and, and, and we're talking and trying to make sense of, of all this, and we pass the fruit, and we stumble into the meat department. Large families, you know what it's like. You get looked at by everybody and their brother. And in each department, the kids get a prize, or the kids get a treat, and a costumed employee takes care of you, and we arrive in dairy. And just when we feel like we've got everybody into a controlled little pod around us, and we, we feel relaxed a little bit, the costume employee happens to be a near-life-size Tyrannosaurus Rex dinosaur. And our four-year-old, Eleanor, looks at him and goes, three years old, sorry, goes, And she hides behind the chest freezer um, saying, please tell me he's not real. Please tell me he's not real. And then we make it to the end. And, and, and we've been under so much tension and stress. We get the last station. It feels like two hours. It was 20 minutes max. 
and a witch is handing out Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies. I love Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies. I went to college in Cleveland, Tennessee. They had a surplus store of Little Debbie products, many of which were cream pies. And so there we are, and, and she hands the kids um, um, Little Debbies, and they, and they each take one. And I'm thinking, I have never been so glad to see a witch in my life, right? She's got Little Debbie oatmeal cream pies. And my assumption was that the treats were only for the kids, so um, she, she handed the four oldest theirs. And instead of, as a mature Christian, responsible, um, progressive uh, in terms of faith, uh, man, instead of asking if I could have one, this is a true story, instead of going to the Little Debbie oatmeal cream pie aisle and getting one and putting it in our cart and paying for the box, here's what I did. No joke. I said, could I have one of those oatmeal cream pies for the two in the stroller to have on the ride home? (laughs) Knowing good and well those babies couldn't eat a cream pie. (laughs) And the witch looks down at the seven and eight-month-old babies and confusion (laughs) creeps onto her face and she says, like for each of them, or will they be sharing? Or and, and I say, oh, one is plenty. One is plenty. My motive was impure. I had no intention of sharing. And I sat in the driver's seat and took the cream pie out of my coat pocket, and I partook. And let me tell you, it was like a spiritual experience. The next day, which would have been Sunday a week ago, I stood in this pulpit and I told you all moving through Esther how we're to be painfully honest even in the little things. And in the moment that I was speaking this, I didn't tell you this at the time, the Holy Spirit spoke to me almost audibly and say, said, yesterday you stole a little Debbie oatmeal cream pie. It was concise. It was plain. And so under the impressionable voice of the Holy Spirit, I walk back into festival this week and and I confess my sin to the manager. And glory to God, she grinned, she laughed, and she gave me a lifetime supply. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't give me, I'm just kidding. She said, next time you're in, donate a dollar to charity at the register and we'll call it even. And I said, done, thank you, forgive me. Here's my point. Faith is not just what you believe. It's how you behave. It's how you behave. You can tell who is faith, not by what they say, but by what they do. And you say, I believe in God. And the scriptures say, even the demons believe in God. And they tremble. James was saying, listen, belief itself, it's not some kind of huge accomplishment. Stop viewing it that way. Are you bothered by your sin? Like I was bothered by that cream pie theft. I can't hardly say that without laughing. (laughs) Oh, man. Are you willing to go talk to somebody about it? I need help. I've made a mistake. 
I'm living hypocritically. I've got to fix this. I want to have a clean conscience before my Father in heaven. Where have you been passive and you need to be active? Maybe I say, I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, but I don't. We'll start reading it. Amen. I know I'm supposed to pray, but I haven't been. We'll go to a closet, clean it out, kneel on the ground and pray. Or sit at your dining room table with a cup of coffee and, and pray. I really feel like I should serve a meal at St. Vinny's with the church. We'll do it. Quit thinking about it. Go on a Monday night and serve. I need friendship and community in my life. Join a life group. They've been around for nine years. I know I ought to be involved in, in bold. We'll do something. It doesn't have to be 50K. The widow gave pennies and Jesus said she gave more than the ones who gave out of their abundance because she gave out of her poverty. Let that be said of you. Jesus loves you. He gave us the gift of his Holy Spirit to provide opportunities for progress in his name. It's not about your perfection. Jesus did say, be perfect as my father in heaven is perfect. He didn't mean that literally. He meant to show us, to frustrate us so that we'd realize we can't and so that we'd fall on the, on the, the support of his grace. We all steal cookies. You do. Not literally, maybe, but figuratively. Let's move beyond mediocrity for the cause of Christ. Verse 4, we're almost done. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Here's an important point. Don't assume that the leaders know much. A lot of times people say, I can't believe that they made that decision when the leadership didn't make that decision or the leadership didn't have all the information. The queen sits in the palace. She's absolutely clueless as to what's happening. Don't assume that your boss knows what's going on all the time. The word came to Esther. They're about to kill your cousin. They're about to kill your adoptive father, failure, and 15 million more of your friends and family members. This is a major humanitarian crisis. And Esther's crisis, you know what? It became her opportunity. We're going to talk about this more next week. Do you know how much opportunity has come out of crisis Often even, I think the most spiritual progress that we make is when we're in a season of duress. When our hands are tied. When stuff's breaking all the time. When we have a short fuse. It is all too common to hear a Christ follower say, it was tough, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but I've never grown so much 
in my life, in terms of my faith, had I gone through or not gone through cancer or divorce or betrayal or suffering or poverty or unemployment, I wouldn't be this close to Jesus. I'll tell you a story in closing. My friend Darren DeFord, he's such a country bumpkin. You would love this guy. He's a logger, John, or rather a tree trimmer in the Mather area. Anybody heard of Mather? Yep, it's middle of nowhere, Cranberry Bog Territory. Pastor Darren, who, who has a church of probably 50, 40, 50 people, felt led to go and pray for a gentleman that he knew from high school in the community who just got diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he did so, and he sat with him, and he asked if he'd come back the next day, and he sat with him and prayed for him again, and he asked if he could come back the next day. And for days, he continued to stop by and visited this gentleman's house. And before you know it, the guy started coming to his church, and so did his entire family. And within a matter of a couple months, the entire family committed their lives to Jesus Christ. They became Christ followers. They became Christians. And Darren started visiting continue to visit along the way and I think still visits with him to this day and recently the guy told him, I just talked to him a few weeks ago, Darren told me, the guy said, Darren, I can't tell you enough how grateful I am to have developed terminal cancer. If I wouldn't have had it, you'd have never been here. My life is short but the next one's long. And I'm grateful that I'm going to spend it at the feet of Jesus. So, Father, I pray that everybody here makes the same decision. I pray, Lord, that they choose to spend eternity at your feet. I pray that we wouldn't have some sunny outlook on the Christian life as as if nothing bad ever happens. Life is, is hard, but you are good and you love us and you care about us and you care about every single person here, even if they may not know it or deny it. Is there anybody this morning who just lift a hand and say, I want to become a Christian today. I don't know exactly what that means. I'm not familiar of with the lingo, I don't own a lexicon. I just know that I want more of Jesus. Would you raise your hand this morning just so I can see you with everybody else's head bowed? Anybody want to become a Christ follower this morning? Awesome. Awesome. Praise God. You can put your hands down. Two people want to receive Jesus this morning. Anybody else here want to become a Christian today? Wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Another. Hallelujah. Anybody else want to become a Christ follower this morning? Three have decided to follow Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Will you all just... Repeat after me at your seats, Heavenly Father. I drop the ball. I fumble. I don't have it together. I'm not perfect. I'm sinful. I've stolen cookies. 
and I need your help. I can't do this on my own. It's not my elbow grease or my grit. It's your grace. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. I concede that. I believe that you died. I believe that you were buried. I believe that you rose again. And I believe that you're coming back for me. I accept your salvation. I'm no longer Lord of my life. You are. I submit to your lead. In Jesus' name, amen.